Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So before we get started today, I just want to paint the room for you. Bob Iger, my guest, is the president and CEO of Disney. That means he oversees almost 200,000 employees, theme parks all over the globe, and dozens of incredibly successful media outlets, including Pixar, Marvel, and ABC. I'm sure you've heard of all of those. I've just walked into his office, and it's not only bigger than my house, it looks like a museum of Disney paraphernalia. In the corner of the room, there's this giant chess set, and I mean it's huge. There are Disney-related toys, books, photos framed on the wall. It's really fascinating to see the history of this place. But there's something that keeps catching my eye as I'm about to sit down and set up my podcasting equipment. There's this gold embossed logo that says Lucasfilms on this white folder. And inside the folder, there's about 120 pages of red paper. It looks like it could be a movie script, but I don't know why all the pages have read. And Bob keeps looking at it, making sure that, you know, I'm not going to grab it or anything like that. Um, It's clearly, clearly important, but I don't know why yet. Anyway, we'll find out soon enough. So with that, let's get started. You're listening to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and my guest today is Bob Iger. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. So I... I, I know this probably comes up a lot, but so you actually started your career as a weatherman, right? I did. Did you? Did you? Was the dream when you were a little kid to be a weatherman, or was it? Was it? Was, did you watch television on a Sunday afternoon, thinking that's what I want to do when I get older, or was it part of? Well, how did that? How did you get there, and then how did you end up here? It's, it's an interesting journey. At least for me, it's been an interesting journey. I my dream, um, not as a little kid, but. Um, as uh, well, what, we never call them tweens then, but let's say as a tween, was to be a, a television news anchor man. That was sort of the the job in television and, news. And who did you watch? Like, was there someone? Well, that you... Walter Cronkite would Got be the, the most memorable. But I was a I was a, um, a an avid uh, reader of news and a watcher of news growing up, really through elementary from elementary school on. I was the I was the the one in the family that got up first and uh, went outside to retrieve the New York Times on the lawn, <laughs> even in the dead of winter, to bring it into the house, be the first one to open it up and read it. I just love news. I, I do today. You still do today? Even even in the culture of the, the cycle that news is, it's still... Well, I think it's actually, in a way, easier to love news today, uh, although one could argue maybe the opposite. But for me, anyway, it's easier because... It's more ubiquitous in our lives, meaning it's accessible more often. Got it. And so there's a there's a there's more convenience to it, really. Yeah. So I I wanted to be a, a television journalist. Yeah. Or a news anchorman. Did you used to like practice in front of your siblings, or was it was it just like okay, this is the goal? I did not practice. I did do some uh, sports announcing in high school, but but that was that was small. But I majored in uh, in in television uh, in college, 
and did a fair amount of television work, news work in college. Yeah. And uh, from college, if that's what you're interested in, the, the name of the game typically is start at a small TV station and work your way up. And the first opportunity that I had was as a weatherman in Ithaca, New York, at a tiny, tiny television operation. And uh, so the, my so, goal was to do, to do that well and to, to step up to something bigger at another were city. You a, and, were you a good weatherman, or is it, was it, were you, did you have a moment of realization, like, this is probably not the best thing for me? I had a, a, a moment of realization was quite an epiphany, actually, at that point, and that was that uh, I did not feel that I was good enough to ultimately achieve what my real goal had been. I just didn't either. I didn't have the confidence or I just didn't have the ability to do what I had dreamed of wanting to do. And so at the ripe old age of uh, 23, I decided to redirect. And instead of trying to uh, become Walter Cronkite or a job on the air, I decided I would pursue a job off the air but in television. And I ended up getting hired by ABC in New York in, in 1974. So in 1974, you, you go to ABC. Could you ever have imagined that you'd be running Disney? No, no, not at all. No, my, and, my, and I, I never had particularly lofty goals, except that I had wanted to be Walter Cronkite. But, <laughs> um, no, for me, it's always been about um, proving myself in the job that I was given. And once I did... Um, setting my sights on the next job and the next and the next and the next. I was never one that either had a, after I abandoned the the idea of becoming Walter Cronkite, I never had a five-year plan or a, a, a career plan or anything that really um, looked out into the distant horizon. It was much more near-term and current for me. But I, but I had ambition. I just didn't know where that ambition ultimately would take me. Is there a moment where you... Kind of, you sit down. And you're like, "Wow, I now run a company of 100 and what 195,000 people." Is it's that closer to 200,000? It was smaller then. How, how many was it back then? It was. It was probably about 135. But is there a moment where, you, where it's kind of you're just terrified, or is it just like, no. "Okay, I'm, I know what I'm doing, and this is it. I've got to figure it out and grow the business and and so on." Well, there's no. There was absolutely no moment of, of feeling terrified or or even um, overly daunted by it. Yeah. Um, the bigger feeling was I am now running not only one of the greatest companies in the world, uh, but a, a true icon as a company and a brand globally. Um, and on top of that, a company that I had grown up consuming and watching. I remember, in fact, there's a, um, a lunchbox under that shelf there, which is a Davy Crockett lunchbox underneath. Um, I remember watching Davy Crockett on a small black and white television in Brooklyn, New York, when I was four or five years old, and loving Fess Parker as Davy Crockett, watching Walt Disney introduce him. I remember the Mickey Mouse Club and, and being a devotee of the Mouseketeers and, of course, Annette Funicello and watching Walt Disney build Disneyland on television telling the American public about what was coming and going to the movies and watching the, you know, the, the great animated films that he and, and the Walt Disney Company had made. And to suddenly realize one day, my goodness, I'm, in, I'm running the company that Walt Disney founded. Yeah, uh, I've got the job that Walt Disney once had. Um, it was a, as a life experience, as a moment in my life, something that I 
I considered really special. There's a deep appreciation and a strong sense of responsibility as well. How do you? How does someone run a company of, with this many? How do you? How do you actually decide where you're going to devote your resources on a daily basis? There's, you know, dozens of different entities within Disney. Um, you know, you. How do you decide who you're going to meet with, and um, you know which which areas of the business are the most important to focus on at that one period in time? Well, as you can imagine, uh, running a company that is um, is this large and this diverse, because we're in multiple businesses and we operate in multiple places in the world, and in businesses that, while they share some similarities, some of them are very different from each other. Um, the running a theme park in Shanghai is quite different than running ESPN or a Disney store or making a Star Wars movie, for instance. Uh, although they all have at their heart some uh, creative process that is essential. So it, it seems that one of the things that you've been excellent at um, and have kind of devoted a lot of attention to is M and A. Um, was is that is that a skill that you kind of learned along the way from making mistakes? I mean, you've you know you've really picked up some impressive. Well, the M and A discussion, uh, yeah, I, I, I both. Uh, I had some good um, teachers on the M and A front. Uh, Tom Murphy at Capital Cities ABC, uh, who had uh, bought a number of assets for that company. Michael Eisner, who bought uh, Capital Cities ABC, yeah. which was a $19.5 billion uh, acquisition at the time. So I learned a lot about uh, what a company looks for when it when it buys another company. I mean, why do you do it? And where do you, where, how do you analyze value. And also, I learned a tremendous amount about integrating companies. But going all the way back to how I allocate my time, I have to spend, I talk about this often, I have to spend some time in the present, some time in the future. If you're managing a business and you have two feet in any one place, two feet in the present, then you're not preparing your business at all for the future. And if you have two feet in the future, then you're not managing the operation day to day. So my Days are a blend of that. And M&A is part of really looking at the future, which is where should the company go? Where does the company need to go to deliver results or growth for the shareholders of the company? Um, and so that becomes part of the, the my call it daily agenda. And then in addition to that, and this is probably the most important, uh, because this company is you know so dependent on great creativity a good part of every day that i spend here and really outside the office is spent on either one of or sometimes many of our creative processes that also happens to be the most fun so you so do you you know are you reading the next star wars script do you i mean are you getting get, getting involved in that level Yes, uh, I don't read every script uh, that of everything that we make. But and you offer sitting notes right and... now in front of me, on my desk is a script for Star Wars Nine, it's, which it looks... if I were to open, I'd probably violate some uh, <laughs> you huge just go Disney to the bathroom sec- and I promise I won't look security at it. <laughs> covenant. Um, but I uh, so will this, you provide I received notes? this yesterday afternoon. Will you provide notes on uh, that? Will uh, you? Yes, I was asked by Kathy Kennedy, who runs Lucasfilm. Uh, to with along with Alan Horn to read it and and give her some thoughts on um, not necessarily page by page um, criticism or page by page input, but the overall feeling of of this piece, which would be the third in the trilogy of Star Wars movies or called Skywalker Saga that we're making. So I will spend time on that. I've I've been doing this for a long time and. 
because it's such a relatively new asset for the company and such an important one, I believe that a good use of my time, uh, not just in exercising my responsibility as CEO, but also in providing input to our businesses, is to is is on things like this. So just to go back to the M and A thing, what is what's one of it? What's a trick that you've learned? You know, I mean, you're you know when you're when you're dealing with someone like Steve Jobs, for example, um, to to acquire Pixar. You know, is it is it a game? Is it is it? Do you, you know, how, what's the trick that you've? If I was, let's just say, I was going to buy Lucas Films today, like what would be the advice you would give me? To, to, to negotiate and ensure that I, that I actually pull it off and didn't, didn't have someone else steal the company from under me? I think, um, well, some people that I've spoken with in business have treated M&A like a game. I've never looked at it in that way at all. Um, I'm a believer in um, determine what it is that you want to accomplish, meaning do you want to buy this company or not? If you do, determine what it is you want to spend for it. And then instead of playing a game, just basically being resolute about your pursuit of it. If so, to the extent it's a game, it's it's a game in the sense that you 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 start it at, at the beginning at some point and 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 you play it to accomplish something. In some cases, to win. In this case, to win is to actually buy the asset for the price that you deemed it was worth. And so, what I do it's with Steve Jobs is a good example, but with um, Ike Perlmutter, who was the principal selling Marvel, and with George Lucas, who uh, is the one that decided to sell Lucasfilm to us, was to go in and say exactly what it is that we want to accomplish and come awfully co- close early on to telling them what it is we want to pay for it and just basically cut to the chase, uh, put it on the table, not play a game, which is a back and forth, an endless back and forth, and um, that can either end in acrimony or take substantially greater amounts of time, but to get to the result uh, quickly. And then, of course, once that happens, work to integrate the asset that has been bought in the most successful way possible. So I, with Steve Jobs, it was very, very clear. I've got a crazy idea. What's that? By Pixar. We had been talking about whether there was a way to salvage the relationship. He said that it wasn't the craziest idea in the world. I ended up in a four or five hour meeting with him in the Apple boardroom in front of a whiteboard, just the two of us exploring the pros and cons. He had written them on the whiteboard in front of me. And What were some of the cons? The cons were he was not yet fully trusting of Disney and where Disney was. He was very, very concerned that we would be sort of a, 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 the conquerors of Pixar and that in doing so, we would destroy the culture that had become the essence of what Pixar was and was um, so vital to its successful creative uh, endeavors. And the pros and Creative were? output. Uh, he, he worried that we would destroy culture, people, spirit, creativity, um, <laughs> and it would end up basically being a disaster, not just for Disney, but for Pixar. The pros were that he believed that while he wasn't at that time necessarily complimentary about how where Disney was at that at that time uh, as a company, he understood the heritage and the legacy and the potential. And in his heart, he believed that the best partner for Pixar and the rightful home really was Disney. 
because of everything that Disney had stood for going all the way back to Walt Disney's day, he also had concluded that Pixar was in the business at the time making one movie a year. They were a public company. While he owned half of it, he did worry, not necessarily out loud, but he he did share this with me, that a bad movie in one year, even though they had never had one, could be very, very harmful to uh, Pixar as a public company. There was so much pressure on their one product a year output yeah. that it would be very, very... Um, and how? What, so, how many Pixar movies are now made a year? One. One. Yeah. So, and that, still is that still one, worry? Or unfortunately, the track record remains great. But, um, but if if one were not to work, it would it would be there's just so many buffers now because it's part of this bigger company. We would take it seriously, it. but it's just far more forgiving in terms of the environment. So, so with Steve, it was. Not only did he feel in his heart that the two combined would be would be right, but he believed that it would be good for Pixar. He also believed, and this was the result of my pitch to him, that it would give some of the key creative people at Pixar, notably John Lasseter, um, a bigger sandbox to play in. What I pitched to Steve was that if we bought Pixar, that John Lasseter and Ed Catmull could run Disney Animation. He was surprised at that because it's very atypical. When you when you acquire a company, you usually um, uh, narrow the scope of involvement or uh, influence or authority uh, from of the people that you buy instead of expand. And what I was saying was the opposite, which is let's expand what they do. Let's use their talents over a wider swath of, of Disney business. And that was extremely attractive to him because he knew that not only would be they be good at it, but they would love that opportunity. It would be good for their lives. It would be good for them as as, as creators, and it would ultimately be good for Disney. So did, did, was, was the deal done at a handshake at the, in that Apple boardroom, or was there, was there more after that that you had to kind of con- do the convincing? Well, and from a time frame perspective, uh, the initial um, discussion with Steve was in mid-October of 05, and we closed and announced the deal in uh, late January of 06. So it was a few months, but um, the price that we agreed to, we agreed to relatively early, um, maybe, I'm going to guess, a month. But then... uh, um, there, there was a, two other processes we had to go through. One was what you'd expect, particularly with an acquisition was that was north of $7 billion, and that is you have to inform your boards, yep. and there's got to be some analysis done at the board level and discussion and presentation. That took a little time. But then on top of that, what took more time was all the things that Steve put in his con category <laughs> about what could happen to Pixar. He wanted to figure out how to reduce to writing and reduced to a, a contract, which we ended up calling a social compact, uh, to protect Pixar when it became part of Disney. And the list was long and interesting, and in some cases you, 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 comical when you think about it in today's terms or in today's world, but it, it included many, many things that... Like what was an example? An of- example was that once a month... Pixar employees had a beer bash on Friday afternoon. That's in the contract. And in the social compact, <laughs> we agreed that we would have a, continue to have a beer bash. And what's funny about it was that when the, the day after we closed the deal, 
uh, our general counsel of Disney decided that he would get a keg and that we would have a beer bash <laughs> in our corporate headquarters, just as sort of a, either a tip of our hat or a tip of our glass to the Pixar folks. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. When I was a teenager, I remember how excited I was when I first started shaving. It was like one of those moments where I finally felt like I was a grown-up. However, what I was not excited about was how expensive razor blades cost from these big razor blade companies. Luckily, today, there's a company called Harry's which sells razor blades directly over the internet, and by doing so, saves people a lot of money. So rather than pay $4 at a drugstore, if you go to harrys.com, you get to pay half that. I'm telling you, I've tried these razors. They're amazing. In fact, Harry's is so confident that you'll love their product that they're going to give Hive listeners today a free trial set. All you have to do is pay the $3 for shipping, which, let's be realistic, is half the price of a pour-over coffee from a fancy coffee shop. It's a really great company. The folks who started it, Jeff and Andy, are really good guys. They even donate 1% of their sales to charities. So to get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash the hive right now. That's it. Harrys.com slash the hive. I'm telling you, you'll absolutely love these razors. You've done all these acquisitions uh, since you've been CEO. Um, you haven't, with the exception of Maker Studio, you haven't really acquired any tech companies. You haven't, especially, you know, there was, of course, rumors about Twitter and things like that. But you'd never, you haven't gone after any of these big social networks, even though they are media entities that would, would or maybe you have and you just can't say. Um, is there a reason for that? Is it, is it that these companies are overvalued? Is it that you don't necessarily know if they're the right fit for Disney? What, 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 what's, the, what's the thinking there? Well, any of the acquisitions that we've made have taken into consideration a number of things, um, fit for the company in terms of strategic fit. Um, The big acquisitions that we made were perfect fit strategically because they were all, um, we call it intellectual property, but they were all creative businesses, storytellers. And they were all, they were telling stories that were, um, could easily fit into uh, the, uh, called the, sort of the, the Disney storytelling apparatus, which is telling stories not just in one medium or in one form, but then leveraging or using those stories to tell across many mediums. So, for instance, a movie that is a, a Star Wars movie becomes a theme park attraction or theme park land and and fits very neatly into our consumer products business, and I could go on, but they all fit very nicely. So the strategic fit has to be weighed. And that obviously would be a question we have asked ourselves and would continue to about anything in the tech space. There's obviously a valuation. You know, Do you think this, a lot of these companies are overvalued in Silicon Valley? I think it's way too much of a, a generalization to simply say a lot of them are overvalued. Twitter, At some point they weren't. Snapchat. I mean, At the, some you point know. they weren't. And then you could argue that it's 2020 hindsight that we should have bought them then. Um, but we didn't. You know, what, we've, what, what we decided to do, which was part of my strategy coming into this job, was to focus on, and this, when I say focus, I'm not just talking about our time, I'm talking about our, our capital, our resources, was to focus on telling great stories. That that was the heart of what the Walt Disney Company was, and that technology had to obviously be uh, used to tell st- better stories and to reach more people, but we weren't really interested in being in the distribution business. Now, you could argue that in today's world, the technology underpinning of social media, of social networks, Snapchat, um, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, um, 
has turned them into not just tech companies, but they're um, they're storytelling platforms in their they're in their own right. Yeah. Um, but we were analyzing them more as potential distribution at the time. You could, I guess, argue today that maybe we were not as um, open-minded or as expansive in our thinking as we could have been or should have been. But nevertheless, we didn't. And in terms of what we might be looking at today and what we ultimately might buy, I, I, I couldn't. I, one, I don't want to generalize. Yeah. And two, I don't want to be specific about them. So do, do you um... – when you think about the way that the media landscape has changed, um, th- there was a point in time where um, you would make a movie and your competition was someone else who made a movie. That people would like, on Friday nights, they were going to go to the movie theater. Um, you, if you had a TV show, it was, it was competing with a TV show and so on. And one of the things that I, that's happened with technology is that um, everything competes for our time. Uh, uh, a book competes for a movie, competes for a game on your phone, for social media, for you name it. Um, how do you think about that as far as it affects your business um, and where to devote your, your time and your resources? I think, by the way, I think um, throughout our lives, even before the um, emergence of all these new technology platforms that are taking, that, that we're spending time on, um, there's always been competition for our time. A, a book, a game, but, playing with toys, talking to your parents, having dinner. But I think what's happened today, and I see it both in my life, I see it and certainly in my children's life, is that there's just a lot more that is competing for our time. There's more slicing and dicing of that time. Now, in some cases, there's great overlap, whether you call it multitasking or or, or something else. The fact of the matter is, as much as as we as we get disdainful of it, if you go to a restaurant today and look around at the tables around you, the number of people that are, are actually looking at their smartphones instead of their dates or their wives or their husbands or whatever, it's shocking to me. That's in a way competition for time, but it's also overlap of of of, of basically meaning people are doing more things at once. That that and that's just a fact of life. Um, it has factored into um, how we've spent our time and our capital at Disney in that we saw a world that was going to fragment more and more in terms of competition for people's time. Uh, whether it was more platforms and more technologies and sort of more ways for them to spend time or whether it was just more of what had already existed, more TV shows, m- more um, movies, et cetera, and so on. Interestingly enough, I saw a statistic yesterday that people in America watch on average five hours of TV a day. That's been fairly flat for the last 10 years. It's gone up a little bit, but not dramatically. But if you look at the number of television shows that are being made today, substantially more than five to 10 years ago. So what it means is that you have many, many, you have people watching many different shows. Well, you have, than they you have people, people watching more people watching less of the same show. You know, the Cosby's was 20 plus million. Now Breaking Bad okay, is well, three plus. Okay, so let's come let's come back to that for okay. a minute. Yes, I guess you could say that. But if you look at some of the statistics, um, movies are a good example of that too, but so is music. Um, and The Economist, had a, if, I could, if I could mention a, a competing publication, had a pretty good, a very good piece on the future of media a few months ago. And it talked about, 
songs, and it talked about America buying and downloading about 96 million different songs in a, in a given year, some crazy number. And um, uh, 4% of them were, 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 were bought by more than 100 people. <laughs> wow. So in other words, 96% of them or so were bought by, by uh, you know, less than 100 people. So what was the really good stuff uh, or the really popular stuff was at the top of the, not only yeah. at the top of the heap, but it dominated the consumption. And I thought that, w- that was pretty interesting. In movies, there were well over 700 movies made in the United States last year. We made about 10. And we had 20% of the global box office and a greater percentage of the U.S. box office. So interestingly enough, what a trend that, that we spotted um, or that we thought would unfold back over a decade ago when I became a CEO was we thought the world was going to continue to fragment. There'd be more competition. And we asked ourselves the question, what's the best way for us to thrive in a more competitive world? And the conclusion that we reached was First of all, make fewer things of higher quality. The quality would win out. And that brands, even brands that weren't even considered brands before, sometimes they're called franchises, but um, brands uh, that, that represented the highest quality would, would, would continue to rise above and flourish every, even in a world that was substantially more fragmented. And so, and it, what came to me was, I looked at how we were doing with Disney movies versus non-Disney. We were making Touchstone movies, for instance, and we were making Miramax movies. And the return on our invested capital in the Disney business was substantially greater. So the light bulb that went off for me was, well, let's make more Disney films and less of the other kind. Hmm. And that then led to the acquisition of Pixar because the brand attributes of Pixar and the brand value and the recognition and the trust that people had in Pixar very much mirrored what Disney had been, what Disney wanted to be. Marvel fit into a similar category. When, when people said, Mar- when you say Marvel to someone, or when you did then, they immediately thought about Spider-Man and superhero stories, et cetera, and so on, a kind of a known entity. Uh, and so... That seemed like another Disney, and certainly Star Wars fit into the same category. So we simply decided to focus on fewer um, high-quality, more high-quality branded films instead of more non-branded films. And I think the other thing that we had going for us is the Disney brand stood for something as as a studio brand. Uh, at the movies that other studios didn't have. And I, nothing against the quality of the movies that our competitors make. But I've never heard anyone say, I'm going to that movie because it's a Warner Brothers movie. I'm going to that movie because it's a Paramount movie. Disney was in a different place. Interestingly enough, so is Marvel. And and so is Star so Wars. Yeah. Now, that's a Lucasfilms and Star Wars. Star Wars in particular is a franchise, like Pirates is a franchise. And Avengers is a franchise, so slightly different. But that's where we have put all of our resources on the movie-making side. And even in this crazy uh, product-filled, platform-filled world of multitasking and many platforms and the ubiquity of not just the media that is the storytelling of someone else, but media that is social interaction, forms of social interaction, Snaps and Vines and Instagrams and you name it, we, st- we, we stand tall. 
Do you? Uh, what is your media consumption like? Do you? Are you on social media? Are you? Uh, uh, what? What's your daily? I'm. I'm. I have. I have media ADD. Um, <laughs> it serves me very well. In so what's this a day? What's a day? You wake up in the morning. Tremendous amount of media so in a given day. Could give me an example of a, a day in Bob Iger's media well, life. I wake up in the morning at four fifteen, mostly to work out and to have what I call quiet time. Um, what time is, did the kids wake up afterwards? I'm couple? gone before the kids wake up. Got it. Um, that time is spent listening to music. The music that I listen to is usually the result of my having sampled a lot of music uh, in over periods of time and creating multiple playlists that I use to work out to. What to, kind of music do you, is it like? I'm very eclectic. I, I, I love classic rock, but that's my age. Um, I... I love jazz, particularly jazz standards. Are you into hip hop or anything I'm, like that? I'm, I'm only into hip hop as part of a workout playlist, and and when I'm driving in the car with my sons. Although I appreciate good hip hop, uh, I love alternative rock, and I, I I will listen to the most recent artists. Um, do you do, are you into audiobooks, podcasts? I listen to podcasts too, but what I do in the morning is I work out um, with just music with a television that is on but silent. And I'm usually watching uh, the local news or an East Coast feed of, of, of uh, network news, Good Morning America. But when that's over, I will read uh, two or three newspapers or- uh, in, in print? I watch print or on the app. I'm, I've, I, I was a traditionalist when it come to, came to newspapers and, and, and stuck with reading the physical copy for a long time. But I've gotten more and more- um, comfortable with the apps. I've been using the apps for a long time, but I've, it's now okay for me to replace reading the physical copy with a digital. That For a while, that wasn't the case. It was a supplement instead of a replacement. So I look at the apps. While I'm doing that, I typically will check my Facebook feed, my Twitter feed, and my Instagram feed. And then, of course, I'll look at things like ESPN and highlights of my favorite teams, and I, I'm doing almost all of that. Now, when you check your go to work. when you check your Facebook and your Instagram, are you liking people's photos? Are you leaving comments, or are you you just kind well, of well? In Instagram, more, more I'm, lurking? I'm uh, liking friends' photos. Um, I do follow a lot on Instagram of things that I'm interested in. So I like sailing. So I follow every single sailing Instagrammer that is out there. And there I just like looking at pictures. I also like travel, particularly to places like Italy. So I'll look at beautiful seaport you know, town, uh, towns in Italy, as a for instance. Um, on Twitter, I will tweet occasionally. I will occasionally do you tweet, actually tweet yourself? Or I do. Some- I tweet myself. Um, I have not tweeted that much. I've been a Twitter user under my real name only since January, and I've probably tweeted about 20 times. I almost tweeted yesterday, it was National Teachers Day, and I was going to tweet an appreciation for teachers and name three teachers that I remember the most growing up. And I had the thing typed, and it was earnings day, and I decided that I was, I, I, I was, I was allowing myself to be way too distracted on too important a day, and I never hit. Say, I never tweeted. I wish that uh, Donald Trump would sometimes say, "I almost tweeted yesterday." Uh, yeah. Well, that's another. That's another thing. I'm more, a little bit more um, thoughtful. Let, no, I was simply going to say less frequent. Uh, I'm less voluble. Do you do you look at people's at replies at you, or or you just kind of don't have the time? I don't have the time to do that. But I'll do. A, I'll, I'll look at Twitter. 
I look at Facebook. I follow on Facebook everything from what, what you'd expect, uh, you know, the, the the Disney studio to see what we're posting. That's sometimes just to get a sense for how we're marketing something. To all the way to, you know, my my sons and my my grandchildren and my daughters and um, nieces and nephews. And it's a way for me to cat to keep in touch with family that's on the other coast and as well as business. And then I will and and then I'll come to work. And I typically will consume more media at work. I will go to multiple websites during a given day, uh, mostly looking for news. Um, I'll check four or five different newspaper sources online. Um, I'll go to things like Huffington Post. I'll go to aggregators like my Flipboard, which um, I've, I've pretty heavily programmed. And But the entire day is spent going back and forth with media. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Last year, a friend of mine purchased a couple of theater tickets for his wife to surprise her for their anniversary. When they showed up at the theater, they were told that the tickets were actually fake and they were turned away. I've heard so many horror stories like this about people buying tickets for concerts, plays, and sporting events on the internet. But I don't worry about that happening to me because I use an app called SeatGeek, which is by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets online. The best part is that SeatGeek guarantees every single purchase, so you can buy your tickets with complete confidence knowing that you're actually getting the real thing. They do a bunch of other stuff too, including grading seats and pricing based on value to help you figure out which tickets are best for your budget. Best of all, the listeners of The Hive today are going to get a $20 discount on anything they purchase on SeatGeek. All you need to do is download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code HIVE, that's H-I-V-E, and you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Again, the code is Hive, and you can enter it directly into the SeatGeek app. So it's interesting because you talk about how much you're using kind of social and and new forms of media. Do you? Isn't there a point in time where you're like, oh, I wish we owned this, or we should build something like this? Yes, or yes, sure, sometimes. But you know, for instance, I'm, I've fallen in. I've recently binge watched a show, a half hour Netflix show that Judd Apatow was responsible for, called Love, on Netflix. And it, it it gives me one. I it it it, can, it enables me to have a continued appreciation for the user experience. I could go to my Netflix app on my iPad at work, go home, be sitting on my desktop, go to Netflix, and where I left off on that episode is right there. Or when I even open up Netflix, the shows that I like are going to be there. So an appreciation for the platform, and that has led to us producing more for them. So Marvel produces some very successful Netflix shows. Now, is it sometimes do I think, well, maybe we should own them? I don't want to use Netflix as a specific example, but sure, I think about that. I wish we had owned them. I wish we bought them earlier. What if? That sort of thing. Should we be looking at more in this space? Not specifically Netflix, yeah, but of in course. general, but, yeah. of course. I'll look at Amazon and I'll look at Hulu and um, I'll, I'll, go to, I'll go to iTunes a fair amount and look for new songs or the, they now have albums that I'll look for the, the album of the day as a, for instance. Um, so when you, um, what you mentioned before that you, you saw what was going to happen with the media landscape in the future and, um, and kind of started to set yourself up for that. What, what do you think the media landscape will look like in 10 years? Will, will you be sitting in your office wearing a, a VR headset and watching a movie? Will you, I mean, what, what do you think? Are we all going to have our own, you know, is, am I going to be watching Bob Iger TV? What, what do you think it's going to look like? 
I think it would be presumptuous for me or anyone to paint a picture that they considered potentially accurate of media in the next 10 years. Because if you were to look back 10 years, we would never have been talking about Facebook, Twitter, Netflix, Snapchat, Instagram. I could go on and on, right? Never. Yeah. Certainly, we could even go beyond that to things like Uber and Airbnb and you name it. We probably would not have even guessed that they were coming. We, now, looking back, we maybe should have, but we, we wouldn't have. So looking ahead 10 years, I think the first thing that I would say about 10 years from now, without getting specific, is that change is going to happen even more rapidly than we could predict, meaning the speed of change is, is hastening. And that's thanks to a technological advance. Um, and so that actually makes it much harder going back to my weatherman days, <laughs> you know, actually technology has enabled weather people today to give 10-day forecasts. We never would have been it's able somebody, to do that it's in gonna, 1973. It's be, with quantum computers, maybe it'll that's be year-long forecasts. Yeah, so, maybe yeah. that's a bad example. I think the thing that we can conclude is that there'll be far more personalization and customization, that whatever environment is that you're in, whether it's, 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 it's opening an app or or, or 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 booting up a device, or maybe even walking into a room or a space, there will be something that is programmed either because it knows what you like and want, having intuited that from your previous uh, consumption habits, or you will have specifically um, designed it, meaning programmed it to do so. And there'll be a lot more of that. So I think, I think the era of let's call it mass personalization, customization, we're only seeing tip of the iceberg of that. Um, and that's both good and bad because it's good in the sense that we should feel all more satisfied, and maybe that our time will it, it'll be more efficient for us because everything that we might want or say we want will be at our fingertips all the time. On the other hand. I do rue a little bit about the potential loss of serendipity and curiosity. Well, it's also, you know, I mean, one of the things um, that, that I've been talking to a lot of people about lately and, uh, and writing a lot about is how we live in a very fractured media society. You know, people on the right read and watch things on the right, people on the left read and watch things on the left, and, and the two never, ever meet. And technology has made that worse. Uh, and, and I... I wonder, do you feel kind of a responsibility to try to fix that? Or is, as someone who runs a company that is involved in this media landscape, or is it just... Well, you're talking, you're introducing a whole I mean, new yes, principle here. But, so we can talk about polarization of but it, from, but, a, but from a social and political perspective. The, the issue of customization that's interesting is I think these so-called algorithms or, or um, technology, um, they're more than AIDS, um, enablers in a way, uh, favor what is most popular, too. You could argue that when you turn something on these days, um, you're immediately shown, App Apple's a good example of this, sort of what's most popular already. So the notion of fragmentation is an interesting one because you could argue that what is good and what is popular is only going to get more and more popular because... But isn't customization is, polarization, or is it is it not? Well, you could argue that customization is... is um, 
it leads to more variety in that I'm watching the 10 channels or 10 TV shows, mostly TV shows. I think, by the way, in television, people are going to watch shows and not channels. But I'm going to watch the 10 that I like best, 10 shows. You're going to like the 10 that you like best. There may be some overlap there. But when I meet you, you're going to have, let's say, eight of them that I've never seen before. And I may have eight that you've never seen. And I may sit with you and say, hey, you want to check these out. You haven't watched that. You may be what. We're watching only two in common. You mean we'll actually talk to each other in the future, face-to-face? No, well, no, I think we'll probably text one another or whatever. <laughs> or, you know, you, as you know, you can even today, you could consume something and, send, and all of a sudden your entire Instagram list or Twitter list or Facebook list knows, you know, Nick just watched an episode of Scandal on ABC um, or you'll watch it and say to everybody, hey, you got to check this episode out. So I think in a way, you've got a megaphone, technological megaphone, to tell everybody who cares about what you think, whether it's friends or followers or whatever, what it is you think is good and what it is you like. So I, I think actually, on in terms of, well, let's call it consumption of media, I actually think you're you're looking at a world where there's potential expansion of, of, of um of shared experiences or what people what people um, could like or would like or, or consume. Now, um, politics and other issues, I think the, there's no question that the world is polarized. And that's in part the result of, of um, uh, choice, of meaning it used to be that you, you had three networks to watch and they were all relatively the same in terms of um, let's call it political leaning or lack thereof, um, and that was it. And then suddenly um, the right had its news and the left had its news, and people who identified more to the right watched the right news, and people identified to the left watched the left news, and the same would be true not just for watching and TV but for all the other sources of news. And that led to or I, a divide. I actually think it's contributed to a divide, whether media, it's the, the only has. result, I think that would be wrong. I think but it's due so to a lot of things, including, I think, leadership. I think I, I'm not suggesting that um, there's an end to polarization when it comes to politics, but I do believe that um, it, it's time for someone to rise up and figure out how not only people can talk to one another, but how they can figure out how to be in the same room with one another particularly if the cause is a shared cause in the sense that let's, let's, since we're in the United States, let's say the future of America is a shared cause. You could argue with what direction it needs to go, but um, living in, 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 in and being a citizen of a country that is not only fully functioning but serving its people well and vice versa is a goal that everybody should share. And it, it will take leadership to get everybody in one place at least talking about that. Um, and I'm not sure. Is and, that and, leadership coming from from a media perspective or from a political perspective? Well, I think it comes from a people perspective. I think it's something that ultimately the American people should demand of its uh, the, of its leaders. The American people demand that that Sean Hannity yells at them and tells them this is what, the way should, they should think, or that for now MSNBC. But you think that's going to change? Or is, I mean, well, it depends on on how if the divide deepens. With no end in sight, I think it. I, I will. Only, I'm going to. I'm going to speak now with some degree of optimism. I would only hope that 
that America rises up and demands something that is uh, more functional than that. I hope you're right. <laughs> that, I, I just, it's, it's one of the things that's been frustrating for me is, is, is just to see, you know, um, how much of a divide, and I do, I do blame the media a lot for it, um, you know, and I work in the media, so I'm blaming myself too. But, but I, and I just wonder if it's just, this, if this is just the world we're going to live in, and, and I see technology has even, has deepened that divide. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious if you think that, that there's, well, technology s- maybe has has been has has contributed to the divide. I don't think technology should be respons is not responsible for fixing it. Um, I would my only argument or my only um, cause for optimism is I think at some point, in order for um, communities or America to function, it's going to have to figure out a way that uh, that the divide. Um, is bridged, or that the divided sides figure out a place uh, to actually have a dialogue where one is not immediately disdainful of the other simply because the other's opinions are opposite of the opinions of of, of you know the of you mean the side. way the, may, the way it used to be. We just shot everybody down. If you yeah. voted, if I voted for Clinton and you voted for Trump, I'm 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 immediately disdainful of you, and may and vice versa. And therefore, uh, not only do I not want to hear why you did that, but I don't even respect you for it, as a for instance. Well, there's something fundamentally broken about that. And at some point, if that continues, which I I hope it doesn't, I think that causes real problems for us societally. And I think ultimately, depending on how deep the problems are, but they could get to a point where where, um, uh, situation demands something better than that, whether people rise up and demand it of their politicians and their leaders, or whether it becomes just necessary for that to happen. I just think it's an interesting it's, it's, it's an interesting exercise to have to think about. Well, how long can a country that was based on that, that is a union that was based on a melting a melting pot of people, at, which includes backgrounds, colors, ethnicities, points of view? Let's have where we were built on that. How long? Does a does a country that was there was a union of all that exist when that union is no longer functioning? Yeah, and in, in the me in the way it was designed to function in the first place. But that's where I'm. But I'm running Disney here, and we were talking about <laughs> well, how actually, I got so, from no, being a, a weatherman. It's a perfect segue. So, how do I work, got, get from being a weatherman to being the CEO of the Walt Disney Company? So I, I asked. We've, got a, we've traveled a. We, we've it's traveled good. A it's good. Way. This is this is what people want to hear. You are listening to Inside the Hive. With Nick Bilton. A few years ago, I was a manager in a division of a big company, and the hardest part of my job was hiring. The internet wasn't much help. There were so many different job websites out there, and they were just confusing. It was all a total pain. Now, there's a company called ZipRecruiter, which easily lets you post a job listing to over 100 different websites with just one click. Once you do it, the company uses their propriety technology to efficiently match you with the right people for the job, and they do it better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, I was talking to the folks over at ZipRecruiter and they said that 80% of the jobs posted on their site get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. They also told me that right now, listeners of Inside the Hive can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. I have no idea why they're going to give away these free job postings, but they are, so you should probably take advantage of it. So just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Hive. 
That's it, ziprecruiter.com slash hive and take advantage of this free offer right now. So I asked a bunch of people, uh, some of whom you know, and uh, you know, what's some questions I should ask Bob Iger? And and you know what the you know what the number one question was? No is doubt. Bob Iger going to run for president? <laughs> it was literally every single person I asked. Is is I look? I know you're running Disney now. Is Can I some, throw that back? At you? Why yeah. do you think? Why is that? What's happened to me that all of a sudden people think, are asking me that? I think that there's um, there's what I've seen that's happened is that um, you know Donald Trump was a reality TV star and he's now the president of the United States for for I can't actually say for better but for worse and and um, well that's suggesting that somehow or another the bar's been lowered or no, the, <laughs> no I, this is I, not it's actually I think what it has signified is that you you know pre Trump you if you wanted to be president of the United States you had to uh, you had to go you'd be the mayor and the governor and you know you had to work your way up in the same way you worked your way up and uh, to become CEO of Disney. And I think now it, it, it's it's that all bets are off that anyone can do it, and and it's not that the bar has lowered. It means that there's a, it's it's a new game, uh, and I think that from what I you know from folks I talked to you know you're you've been incredibly successful running Disney. You're incredibly charismatic. You obviously care about the issues, and I think that there's. Uh, when you look at the the current Democratic Party, it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of leadership there that knows what they're doing, and uh, and I think people are looking for someone or some people to uh, to say, hey, I'm willing to take the chance, and I think that's why the finger gets pointed at you. Well, by the way, anyone who ever uh, admits it or in, or in any way um, describes himself as charismatic, <laughs> I'm not saying you've said that. But that's what people be, say. In my opinion, um, should be. Carefully examined or or whatever, kept at a distance with everybody else. Um, I, I actually, I, I think Donald Trump didn't get elected because he was a reality star. I think a lot of people have concluded that um, an entertainer was, if that's what you want to call him, he actually was a real estate developer too. Um, but an, let's say an entertainer was elected president of the United States uh, without ever having running for office. I think that what people missed was that America wanted change. Um, I don't think that should have been new to Americans, by the way. When you look at the change that Obama brought from after eight years of Bush, or you know, you can go, you can go back, or, or the change that Reagan brought. Uh, then it was after four years of Carter, um, or, or you look back at Kennedy after um, Eisenhower. Um, America, particularly at the presidential level, has voted for change often. Uh, in this case, I think what Donald Trump represented was change from uh, the inside, insider in Washington and in politics to outside. And I think that has nothing to do with me. I'm just talking about him and what we just saw. And I think we, we should have seen that coming. And I actually think that was a result of, not that it was easy to predict, predict that Donald Trump would be president, but I think... America should have realized before the election that the time may have been right for uh, Mr. Smith going to Washington. And that, I think, might be the direct result of some of what we talked about earlier, which is the polarization um, in not only in Washington, but in, in American politics and government that has led to a, more dysfunction than America is willing to tolerate and a desire on, an, on Americans' part to turn to the outside, hopefully to someone who would cut through that. I think that's a lot of what, what we were seeing. Yeah, abs- without It's very it, easy to say all of the attention he got. No, it's, the, I mean, look. <clears throat> the it, apprentice it, it, and that he was a, 
and is a larger say, than life no, character. When I, when I say reality star, I, I think that you know it's just me kind of joking around a little. It, but it, it's it, the point that I'm trying to make is that someone who is not a traditional politician, as you said, Mr. Smith went to Washington, mm. um, and uh, and I guess um, I guess the question, maybe it's a hope that people have. I don't know, uh, is if you would. If you would ever run, is it something you've thought about at least? Is it something that's kind of crossed your mind? I think, I'm, I'm, I don't want to in any way sound presumptuous because I happen to believe that it's a very, very hard job to get and it's a very hard job to do. And I don't think one approaches either the getting or the doing in any frivolous way. It takes a tremendous amount of thought, um, a tremendous amount of um, of commitment to do something like that. And I think it's you know it, 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 it's presumptuous to believe that I've I've um, I've concluded in any way that I'm that I'm a person that, that that can or should do that. What I said yesterday on our earnings call is really all that I will say beyond what I've just said to you, and that is that I've had this unbelievable privilege of running one of the greatest companies in the world for twelve years. I'm not done. I've committed to running it through the middle of 2019. Not only am I not done in terms of time, but there's more I want to accomplish, particularly as it relates to setting this company up for the future to continue to succeed. Succession is an important part of that. And when you do something like that, what I just described, you don't have time to think much about what comes next, honestly. Um, And what what you're posing in terms of what, what could come next is so huge that it takes a tremendous amount of time and effort to even consider that. And I'm, I'm fairly distracted at this point um, by the responsibilities at hand. Uh, so last couple of questions. This is a question I, I ask people a lot. Um, if you could go back 20 years or 30 years, whatever you want it to be, uh, and sit down with, with a, a younger Bob Iger, what advice would you give yourself? Well, first of all, I, I'm typically asked the question, if you could do anything over again, what would it be? And I, there was an, and there isn't anything, really. Um, I've, it's turned out all right for me, and I'm a big I'm a believer in fate and um, the fact that in life little things can make such a difference. If you you know didn't if I didn't walk into a, a, an event at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in 1994, I, I never would have met my wife, as a for instance. And so I think if I, I raise that only because if I, as I look back, if I ever did anything different, it's possible I wouldn't be where I am. Today and so I don't want to. T- I don't even want to think about touching any of it. Um, I'd say the one thing that I would have liked to have known twenty years ago um, was it was all going to work out all right. It would have <laughs> made made life a lot easier. But then again, maybe I would not have been as hungry and I would not have tried as hard. I wouldn't have been as um, focused, I guess, on on what it is I was trying to accomplish. I guess the, um, a, a better way of posing it is, is what is the, the biggest lesson you've learned running a business that you kind of would love for a younger you to know? Well, there I, now you're getting at what I'm, what I'm hoping to write about. Um, there, are, there are qualities of, of leadership that have served me well and I believe would continue to serve um, someone running the Walt Disney Company after me that I, that I will be writing about. Um, and there, there are many of them. I, I'm, I'm, I, this is probably you, where I get more boring. Can you, can you give um, us one quick one? Well, I don't think you run a company 
like this company well um, in 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 over a long period of time without having an insatiable curiosity, without re- and spending a lot of energy um, being curious, asking a ton of questions, uh, wondering about a lot of things. What direction is is technology going? Um, what stories might people like? Where which where should we go? What what markets should we open up? What businesses should we be in? Um, and so I think more than anything, there's an energy uh, that, that curiosity can generate, but there's, a, but there's an energy that curiosity needs, too. In other words, people need to devote time. I don't think it's something you manufacture, by the way. Um, I think you can be better at it in the sense that you can, you can apply yourself more to asking questions and and. and wondering and, and experimenting, trying new things, going new places. That's vital. That's vital. Um, I'd say you know, that would be at the top of my list. Now, I'm fortunate in the sense that I was born curious, and I've always spent a good part of my waking hours um, seeking answers and you know, looking around corners and peering into the future and listening to music and trying different things. And so, so very, very last question for the Star Wars fans out there. How many Star Wars, will, will there be a, what, how many are there now? This is the... We've only made two. Uh, we made Star Wars 7, which was The Force Awakens. We made Rogue One, which was a standalone movie. Star Wars 8 is being edited. That's called The Last Jedi. That comes out in December. A Han Solo origin movie which has not been named, uh, will be coming out in um, 2018. Uh, and we're making uh, Star Wars 9. That is not shooting yet. It's just that's the written. That's sitting on your desk that's right now? That's script that's sitting That right if I touched, that would be shot on and site. We, <laughs> we hope to make a, uh, um, at least one other Star Wars story or standalone film after that. But we've not been specific. And we've got some development going on there, but we haven't been specific about that, what that is. And Kathy Kennedy and um, and Alan Horn, Kathy Kennedy from Lucasfilm, and Alan Horn, who runs our studio, and I met a few weeks back, and um, and talked about potential Star Wars movies that could. When we were done, we we figured out that we might have enough Star Wars movies to take us to 2035. But then we realized <laughs> that we didn't, and no one in the room really need to worry too much about them, <laughs> even though we do have a foot in the future. Uh, but there'll be many more made after. Um, after the set of films that I just described are made. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, Bob Iger. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there, preferably a good one. I also want to say thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. Thanks to my editor, John Kelly. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors, ZipRecruiter, Harry's, and SeatGeek. Please support them the way you support this podcast. I'll see you next week with a fantastic, fantastic guest. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. 
So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.